Dan, thank you so much for taking some time today. Um, we do go way back. I know I've uh, run into you a number of times in a number of different uh, positions and roles you've had, uh, which is always good. Everybody in our space tends to move around a lot, so that's certainly not a negative. But uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because we've done a bunch of programs on sanctions. We've done webinars, we've done podcasts. Elliot and I, we do our weekly little thing. Something's come up, and so we'll mention it. But you're somebody who uh, obviously was at OFAC and done a lot of uh, advisory work, not just with sanctions, but AML and CFT and that sort of thing. So I wanted to start off with a, a basic question, but one I think only somebody like you could really answer. What is it about sanctions that people don't know or don't appreciate? No, and I, I do like how you made it 30 seconds mentioning how I changed jobs on a, a pretty regular basis. So which I've slowed this down as I've aged. Um, I mean, sanctions, and I was at OFAC a long time ago to the point where it's almost not even worth mentioning anymore. I mean, the world has changed pretty significantly. When sanctions were really, I mean, sanctions have been around for decades from a U.S. standpoint. If you asked legends like Dennis Wood, it would go back into the 19th century. Um, but, you know, when you begin to look at you know, sanctions, I think really up until probably 10 years ago, they had this kind of mythical feel to them. Like people got punished for being on the wrong side of them. They might not have fully understood what they'd done. Um, in other instances, it drove a wedge between the U.S., which had really been the driver of economic sanctions globally and a lot of countries around the world. But I, I think you know, sanctions are at its simplest form, not just a compliance obligation on financial institutions, frankly, any company in the United States um, and other governments around the world. I mean, it's an instrument of foreign policy. I mean, sanctions have really escalated in use to avoid deploying troops in conflicts around the world. They were viewed as a means of forcing a change in behavior of a hostile target, be it a government or an entity, um, without having to go to armed conflict. And so it really does take on a role as a key instrument of foreign policy, definitely has evolved in a bunch of ways over the last few years, perhaps some good, others not so good. And um, Jack Lew, in one of his final speeches as Secretary of Treasury, gave a speech at Carnegie, basically warning about the overuse of sanctions, kind of foreshadowing the four years that would follow. Um, and I think as we sit today with conflicts on a whole bunch of different axes around the world, you know, realistically, there's um, probably some questions about their effectiveness going forward. So, so that's a good uh, point to start chatting about. There's been a number of articles and papers, and obviously there's also been hearings uh, on the, uh, in the in the U.S. and in Congress. There's also been talk internationally about the value proposition of sanctions. And some of the things that I've read say that, you know, for sanctions to be effective as a national security tool and, and other, obviously, missions of a sanction program to avoid conflict, if you will, there has to be support. There has to be collaboration with other countries when you do issue these sanctions. And you know better than I, in some countries, what the U.S. does doesn't resonate or isn't accepted by other jurisdictions. But besides the fact that you want to have um, 
a coherent strategy of collaboration, why else would sanctions be, I don't say problematic, because I think we both agree that sanctions are a valuable tool, but, but won't be as successful. What are some of the other reasons why sanctions uh, can be, a, I would say, a hindrance, but can, again, not be as successful uh, as they should be? I think one of the easiest examples to point to is, as we've seen with Russia and the second invasion of, of Ukraine over the last almost two years now, um, it was the first time we had such a major economy that was going to become heavily sanctioned. And so it was truly a situation of not cutting off a, one's nose to spite its face as these sanctions were designed. In doing so, you can create sanctions that might on its face appear to be comprehensive. There's been a lot of misnomers that Russia is the most sanctioned country in the world. Russia is not even close to the most sanctioned country in the world. There is a substantial amount of legal commerce that's allowed between the US and Russia. Um, it's a situation where essentially everything is allowed unless explicitly stated otherwise. And that, when you really drill into this, has created some operational complexities from a compliance standpoint. And how do you really sift through these issues to understand what's good and bad? There's a lot of reputational issues, but they don't all rise to the level of direct legal violations. And so I think when you try to be so careful in designing a program that doesn't inadvertently do things like destabilize the world's aluminum sector, like we saw in 2018, when sanctions might not have been calibrated as carefully, you may create a scenario where they're less impactful than they may present, uh, but still operationally challenging to implement. The, uh, the other issue is, are they designed to do what they're set, they're set up to do, or do they unfortunately impact the communities themselves? So we've seen that question come up. Okay, you're issuing a sanction against the government or against individuals in the government, but are those sanctions going to harm civilians that re rely on the support uh, of um, distribution of, of medicine and, and water and those sorts of things. I mean, how do you prevent a, a sanction from having those negative impacts on people that frankly didn't, didn't do anything wrong with their government, you know? No, and that's always the calculus. I think, you know, even going back to nearly 20 years ago when I was at OFAC, almost every sanctions program had kind of humanitarian carve-outs to allow um, or I should say to limit the collateral damage on a population. Now, if a government that's been sanctioned seizes the aid that's legally allowed and doesn't allow it to go to the intended kind of individuals or groups that need it, that, that creates a different problem. But I think every sanctions program historically has always focused, and this has been regardless of administration, on limiting that collateral damage. You're focusing on a specific target, whether it's Putin and his cronies, whether if it was certain people in the Erdogan regime a few years ago, but not the entire populace, which ended up not working because we destabilized the lira, or at least created another event to further destabilize the lira. That has always been part of the calculus, but it's imperfect like anything else. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I've worked uh, a lot with folks like uh, the Charity and Security Network and um, uh, Insight or um, Interaction USA that work with the imagination groups. And they were very complimentary of some of the special licensing that OFAC has done to do exactly what you mentioned, to sort of carve out humanitarian exceptions. Not perfect, but obviously that that's the attempt. 
the example that always seems to come up in terms of sanctions that impact negatively a community has been Cuba. Now, we've had Cuban sanctions forever. What's your take on Cuba over the past five decades in terms of, I know during the Obama administration, there was a lessening of those to some degree, but what's your take about the sanctions in Cuba? Yeah, Cuba sanctions have had an interesting run. Um, you know, sanctions, it should be noted, are really designed to be temporal in nature. With Cuba, I mean, they've been around for 60 years at this point, give or take. Um, so certainly not temporal at all. And I mean, the U.S. is the only country in the world that sanctions Cuba. There's been a number of enforcement actions of Canadian parented American businesses where ultimately there was a fine because something that was legal in Canada was impermissible in Cuba. But I mean, getting back to the question, I mean, there is a significant population in South Florida that has an ax to grind against the Castro regime that had their assets nationalized. Although in the Trump administration, some of the laws allowed lawsuits to be brought against the Cuban government and other Western businesses to basically try and get funds back that were misappropriated 60 something years ago. Until, I mean, the view, at least back when I was at Treasury, and again, that was in the second Bush administration, was until this population of people in South Florida croak, like there's a huge lobby that's against eliminating these sanctions because they don't want to go easy on the on the Castro regime, on the Cuban government. I mean, this is really this is dragged on like there is not a ton of support in Congress and it's pretty bipartisan to not lift Cuba sanctions because of that lobby that still feels slighted pretty heavily. No, yeah, that's obviously so true. Um, another thing I wanted to mention, and I must admit, it wasn't until recently for me that I appreciated the uh, focus of the Department of Commerce in in the sanction space. And actually, we have. I think you're aware we do this forum uh, in D.C. And last year we actually had a representative of BIS come speak uh, just to really explain to the AML sanctions community who maybe didn't know about it. But FinCEN and uh, the Commerce's BIS just issued a joint statement the other day uh, about when you're filing suspicious activity reports, what key terms uh, can you should you use? Talk a bit about Commerce's role in the sanctions space, because I don't think it's as well known. It is to sanctions actually like yourself, but not as well known to the general compliance community. Yeah, and it's a great question, John. And I first got exposed to BIS in 2006 when the late great Hans Huber, who was OFAC's point person on export control issues, couldn't make a talk at a BIS update. And so they sent me <laughs> um, and I was handed a volume about this thick, basically saying, these are the export control laws of the United States. Figure it out. Um, I mean, that was always a question, even when I was at Treasury, of where is the line drawn between the sanctions jurisdiction of OFAC and the export controls that are born out of Bureau of Industry and Security? You know, I've been in this space almost 20 years. I don't know if I have that clean an answer because in a lot of instances they do dovetail. I mean, right. BIS is focused on a heavy amount of technical efforts on goods and services that may be rendered of a technology nature, of a national security nature um, to countries that we don't want them to go to. OFAC may be more focused on practice-based sanctions, on economic sanctions, less necessarily on like the qualification of a physical good. And like when you begin to get into talks about 
dual use goods, goods that can be used for both military and civilian purposes, it gets really complicated fast. I mean, just yesterday, BIS announced a number of Russian Russians operating in the U.S. and their businesses were essentially banned from exporting anything out of the United States as they were managing a cell um, to move goods to Russia, ultimately, that were totally banned. So, I mean, in these instances, BIS has taken on a bigger role, whether it was related to sanctions on China or sanctions on Russia, to ensure that we say that the American government safeguards its technology, its intellectual capital, even going the other way that certain foreign nationals can't work on certain technology products, projects without a license. You're with um, Oliver Wyman. You're the global uh, anti-financial crime practice leader in uh, risk and public policy. You also uh, are involved with the Atlantic Council. Um, even though we know, as you just said, OFAC and commerce, it covers, doesn't just cover financial institutions, covers covers all of us, frankly. But let's focus on the financial sector. Um, if I'm calling you up for advice to put in an OFAC or just a general sanctions compliance program, what are some of the key elements of that? What are some of the challenges? And you know, besides training and resources, that sort of thing, what do you recommend people do to um, you know, obviously not just comply with the law, but detect potential sanctions evasion, that sort of thing. So what high level makes a, makes a good infrastructure from your perspective? Well, and actually just kind of picking up on what we were talking about before on the nexus between export control and sanctions, that guidance that came out yesterday was somewhat groundbreaking in the sense that banks had not necessarily been on the hook for export control anything. Trade finance, money laundering risks, certainly. Sanctions risks through trade finance, definitely. But I mean, it's interesting on the sidelines of the IMF World Bank Spring meeting in April, the US, EU, and UK governments pulled in a number of global banks into a session in Washington to basically tell them they need to start looking at export control related issues tied to Russia. The amount of phone calls I got from banks off the back of that meeting saying, what are we supposed to, we're not legally covered by these regulations. Right. So what are the expectations? So that notice yesterday was a helpful one because banks have begun to turn their sanctions programs their trade finance businesses into understanding in a more technical nature, what might they be financing? What might they be insuring um, to really understand, might we be doing something that's on the wrong side of export controls? And they were doing that largely absent any sort of government guidance. So I, I do think, you know, to your overarching question, probably the biggest macro challenge that companies I work with face is being nimble enough to understand exposure and react to changing world events. I mean, at this moment, um, in you know early November of 2023, you've got U.S.-China issues, although we may like each other now because Biden and Xi will meet on the sidelines of meetings in San Francisco coming up. You've got the situation with Israel and Gaza and potential sanctions that could be imposed further related to Hamas. You've got U.S.-Russia, or really humanity in Russia, um, related to the invasion in Ukraine. How do you understand your exposure? How do you understand your indirect sanctions risk? And that's been the biggest issue with Russia, is you may not have any direct Russia business, but you may deal with companies in India, the UAE, and Turkey, and they may do business with Russia. How quickly can you really assess whether or not you've got exposure in this area? 
Um, and then what do you do about it? Which is even the harder question, especially as you're getting into some of these meatier topics, especially when you talk US-China, for example, where there's a clear conflict of law where China implemented the anti-foreign sanctions law two years ago that criminalizes compliance with foreign sanctions in China. So like, how do you square that circle and still run your business? Let me get you out of here on this and really appreciate your time today. Um, where do you see sanctions five years from now, 10 years from now? Obviously, it's hard to predict in that obviously all these things that have occurred just this year um, have added to the obligations that everybody has because all the sanctions issued by the U.S. and other governments. Um, but, uh, you know, I think people have been positive about OFAC coming out a few years ago with some compliance recommendations, which they, they had not done before, right? Before, as you know, it was, here's a, here's a, here's a law, don't break it. You know, it's sort of, that was hard. You, you, you would encourage voluntary self-disclosure and that sort of thing, but there wasn't a lot of direction. I can remember not talking to you directly, but when you were there again, a couple of decades ago, when I was trying to help the banks, Got nothing out of OFAC. Hey, what can we what can we tell our people? But they've done much more of that. So now there there's both an infrastructure, there's a, uh, a good feedback mechanism to some degree. So generally speaking, what do you see happening uh, going forward in, in with all of those things? Yeah, it, it's interesting. When I look at the arc of OFAC, when I was there, the group I was in was called Compliance Outreach and Implementation. Then it was called sanctions evaluation and enforcement, which is definitely not the same kind of like right. message. And now it's back to compliance. I think OFAC's realized the only way to effectively implement their policy is through sound operationalization. And that means guidance and clarification, which was the mission back when we met, like almost 20 years ago when I was there. You know, when I look more broadly at, at where we could be in five years, I mean, I, I think you could go two hard directions. I mean, what we've seen over the last few years is the weaponization of economies. Economic statecraft is now kind of an understood term, whether it was related to the dollar being kind of wielded as a threat um, or now precious metals and minerals that are being used to kind of safeguard one's economy as they look to try and basically nearshore and internalize production. Um, I mean, I, I think you could see a situation where, you know, you see more governments essentially weaponizing their economies for different policy objectives. And I hope that that's not where this is going. But I mean, my colleagues at the Atlantic Council I mean economic statecraft and really a doctrine around economic statecraft is something that a lot of people are clamoring for to essentially put guardrails around how far can you take really working and using your government as a cudgel to force other countries to make certain decisions. And I think that is the concern is how far does this go? Making people choose essentially. Um, you know, that is the concern that I have of the extremes that we could see there. Although the biggest extreme was really US China and looking at everyone else and forcing them to choose. If there's able to be a reasonable detente there, I think that simplifies the problem a bit more. But I mean, the U.S. is not the only government in the world that people want access to anymore. You know, the dollar and its dominance globally is waning, not that the de-dollarization argument will really hold water, but by the numbers, the dollar, you know, is losing some dominance in global trade and other countries seize upon that 
and turn back at others and really look to leverage their own economies in a similar way that the U.S. did to force countries and companies to make a choice. So I do think seeing economic statecraft become a lot more of a prominent construct um, is something I'd expect to see a lot more of. Dan Tenenbaum, thank you so much for sharing your insight. Uh, OliverWyman.com is where you can find out more information about the company. Uh, Dan is also a frequent contributor to Bloomberg Television, CNBC, and, and other uh, business um, media outlets. And so you can see him there. Anytime there's a major sanctions issue, you can be sure that Dan is probably getting the call. So thanks so much. I know how busy you are and everything, but really appreciate your time today. Thanks, John.